it is a pleasure to be with you uh, this, this morning. I want just to take a moment and thank the organizers for putting this together. There's, there's so many different things going on in our culture that Christianity can speak deeply to, but often for whatever reason doesn't, or doesn't have the context in which to articulate these things. Um, I spend a lot of time working with graduate students, and that's good because these are future pastors, but it's also good to speak across multiple layers of the Christian community. So it's a pleasure, it's true pleasure to be here with you. So I want to talk to you about this question of the creation mandate, the cultural mandate. And this line of engagement that I, that I want to take in this first lecture today is this critical reflection upon a topic that sits on the overlapping boundaries of anthropology, the study of humanity, what it means to be human, sociology, what does it mean to have a human society, and politics. What is the proper way to think about the organization of polities? Um, the polis, the city, is not just a political economic question in the way that we think of it today, but the polis, in classical terms, is the idea of a civilization. So politics actually is a discussion about what it means to be a part of a civilization. And that's in the grand sense, not in the sense of what you would find on, on the Twitter feeds or what you would find necessarily in the, in the five-minute sound bites you get in the evening. But in the grand sense, what does it mean to be a citizen or a participant in civilization? That's a much bigger register, perhaps, than what we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so more properly speaking, the topic here is at the intersection, from a theological perspective, at the boundaries of theology, metaphysics, and metaethics. What are those grand narratives that tell us about the world as it is? What are those grand narratives that tell us about ethics? How must we behave? If you're familiar with Francis Schaeffer, you know it's this question, how should we then live? And that's the language of what you're dealing with, theology, metaphysics, and metaethics. It's this doctrine that the human being as an individual, as well as the doctrine of human community and society, every person, whether a scholar, a theologian, a philosopher, an economist, a historian, a politician, or a day laborer, everyone, everyone in this room has a concept of themselves as individuals, and some concept of themselves in community. Now, whether you derive this explicitly or just implicitly. For Christian theologians, this discussion of the human community, the public good, the nature and basis of human fellowship, the goal of human existence, and the worship of God, as well as the means by which to attain these things, are based in God's prerogative and his initiative. From a Christian perspective, then, Understanding in relation to God what a human being is and what the purpose is as a human being grounds every subsequent question of human anthropology, society, politics, economics, and law. In short, to formulate a comparison between Christian religion and modernity and any other refer reference point of comparative religion or comparative religious, philosophical, or any other form of reference point, one must take into account at least the Christian conception of the image of God in every human being. Every human being is created as and is created to be an image bearer of God. And that creates a space that we must honor. Every human being 
is one made in the image of God. And if you are a believer in God, then that also obligates you to recognize this person as a creation of God. And because it is God's creation, that person has dignity because they belong to the Lord as a creature. There's more to talk about here in terms of redemption. But at basis, a creature has the fingerprints of the Almighty and therefore cannot be ignored. And that's, you know, used to, they used to call common decency. Well, unfortunately, that, that, that's uh, quite an assumption these days. Um, but once upon a time, that was a shared value about the nature of humanity as inherently valuable. And those things are, by the way, are up for grabs. Um, so in short, to formulate that comparison, whether it's religious or philosophical or otherwise, one must take into account at the least the Christian conception of the image of God in every human being. Every human being is that image bearer, a representative, a steward of God's good creation. And this, by the way, gives grounds of very strong doctrine of vocation and calling in each of our various abilities, right? Not only do you have dignity as a human being, but that means you're also endowed with gifts and abilities that when positively used can contribute. And so that's an important point too. Um, if your personhood is up for grabs, then so is your value and the value of your effort. What are the things that our children and grandchildren struggle with? Identity, value, and labor. Why do I work? What's the point? Marriage is at an all-time low. Um, statistics came out recently that said that um, of folks at 40 years old and younger, 25% uh, have never been married and don't even necessarily express a desire to be. Um, and so that raises it very interesting questions about what are the cultural values driving that. Um, that's an important question. Christians should take note of that, given what we've heard about the cultural mandate. And so the Christian conception of human existence is permeated with the religious. The relation of humanity to God, as well as the relation of human beings to each other in reference to God, and in fact, before God. That key text that we looked at earlier, I want to read to you again. Genesis 1, 26 to 29. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This grounds the picture that human beings have dignity because of that image of God. And then God blessed them. And so this dignity comes with blessing. Ponder that. There's a blessing for being human. Uh, it, God views it as a good thing. He hallows it and sets it apart. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A basic point here to observe is that in God's economy, every blessing comes with responsibility, and every responsibility comes with blessing. It is a lie to say that there's a state of affairs that is only blessing with no responsibility. Likewise, it is equally a lie 
to say it's only toil and responsibility and never has blessing. Baby smiles come with diapers. Okay? You cannot have one without the other, or shouldn't, right? And that's an important point to realize, is that every aspect of labor has in it a blessing. If you have responsibilities, it means there's people that you care about. That's a basic point of human society. If you are a mother, it means you have children, right? If you're a father, it means you have children. If you're a husband, it means you have a wife. If you're a wife, it means you have a husband. These are wonderful responsibilities and wonderful blessings. And therefore, it's an important point to realize. Sometimes we can get into complaining, but it's an important thing to realize that blessings and responsibility in God's economy are linked, never divided. Pastors, do you feel the weight of blessing and responsibility in your congregation. It's both a blessing and you feel the weight of responsibility. Um, elders, you feel that as well. Deacons, the same. And those things should not alarm us, but it should awaken us to the reality that this is what's part and parcel to human society. Um, it's one of the ways that we see it. So we have responsibility here in 126 through 29, but we also have blessing. Now, what I mean by humanity as image bearers of God is this. In Genesis 1, 26 to 29, we learn that God created human beings, male and female, in a condition of blessedness, righteousness, and with rule over the earth with accountability immediately to God. According to Genesis 2, 7, when God breathed into man, he became a living soul. This means that according to Christianity, human beings have an immortal soul as well as a body. This reasonable soul in conjunction with the human body forms the context in which human beings desire, choose, think, love, act, and worship in righteousness and holiness. Furthermore, Adam and Eve had the law of God written on their hearts, as we learn elsewhere in the Bible. We also learn that Adam and Eve were suited for family and thus naturally sociable. That's an important point. In our second lecture today, we're going to talk about someone who thought that the the basic default setting of the human race is war. That changes the way you view dynamics in family. That changes the way you view relations between parents and children, between leaders and led. It changes it if you think in terms of society as a basis of a unit of conflict at, at the core versus a, a society of a family. That's an important point. And Christians would say that, the, that human beings are created sociable. That is, they're geared towards fellowship. It's the way we're made. And that's a, a delight. Um, now, here in the creation account, that because we find that sociability, we also find something else. We find God declaring the creation good as well as commissioning Adam and Eve to the tasks of faithful stewardship of creation in ethical knowledge. Not just, you know, have you ever thought of that? Knowledge is not just something you know. It creates an ethical obligation in what you do next. Yes, be a scientist. But that science creates an obligation of what you do next. Yes, be a salesman. Yes, go into business. 
but that knowledge creates an ethical edge to how you treat your neighbor and how you live before God. There is no realm of human endeavor that doesn't come with a moral obligation. There is not an amoral space. It all is before the Lord. And that's, part, that's a very important point and is sometimes forgotten in the way that various things like law and science and economics and other things are done. And when you lose sight of that, you will also lose sight of human dignity. You will lose sight of the fact that this is a fellow human being and they become a means to an end. And therein is part of the conflict. So we find out that Adam and Eve were committed to faithful stewardship, creation and ethical knowledge, righteousness and uprightness of thought and action towards each other and holiness both individually and corporately towards God and worship. Thus every human being, according to the Bible, is created, designed, and fashioned with a longing for justice and for fellowship and love. In this state of original righteousness, humanity had the duty to worship God as well as love and service to each other. Right worship of God cannot occur without right relationship among God's people. That's an important point if you read 1 John. To say that you love God but you hate your neighbor is, a, is, is not a compatible statement if you are a Christian. Um, and so you see that in the way that humanity is set up. Here we find that humanity is both ruler as a representative, uh, that is a vice-regent, a co-ruler of God, and he's also ruled. He's also ruled. There is no reason in God's economy <laughs> after the fall why one sinner should obey another sinner unless God has made the distinction. And therefore, that's an interesting point to put out there, that every human being is both in one sense, called to rule in an area of their vocation and calling, and at the other hand, they are also ruled. That's an important point for human society, how you think of, of yourself, that you are both someone who bears witness to the law, but you are also one who is under it. Uh, think of a parent. The best argument I can make to my children for moral instruction is when I tell them that their father is also under authority. That is helpful to them, that there's a pathway, a pathway of appeal, um, even with respect to their, their father. So human beings live under God's law. Satan became Satan precisely because he claimed to be beyond the reach of God's law. Satan became Satan because he thought he was beyond the reach of God's law. Satan, and that's, uh, that's an important point. He was beyond the reach of God's law and God's purposes. Likewise, as a historian, and a historian of many things, but one segment of that is religious conflict and warfare. History is littered with people who thought they were beyond the reach of law and were willing to act in that way towards others. Um, it's a dangerous state of affairs. In God's creation, human life is one of fellowship, service, leadership, love, and righteousness. After the fall into sin in which Adam and Eve disobeyed God by seeking their own good, apart from and without reference to God, human beings now have a sense of guilt and shame and alienation from God and from each other. According to Scripture, sin, which is any lack of conformity or transgression of God's law, brings alienation wrath, and even death. 
and even a total and eternal judgment. But God also promised a redeemer who would in the course of time bring salvation to all who trust in God. The curse of sin will not ultimately be the last word in the grand blessing of creation. Thematically, we see in this first several chapters of Genesis the first hints of human society, religious worship of God, and a human stewardship of God's creation in meaningful and purposeful labor. We also see the source of human suffering and conflict starts at, in breaking with God, der, deriving a law for oneself, right? Did God really say, isn't that the temptation? Aren't you capable and competent to devise your own law for yourself and others apart from God? You see, that's the nature of the temptation in the garden. It's not just a question of fruit. It's a question of, of obedience to the ways and will of the Lord. Are you sure you're under the word of the Lord? Did God really say that's the nature of the temptation? And so we see at the very beginning the most diabolical thing that can happen is an undercutting of God's purposes, his plans, and his ways. And it comes through asking the vice regent, surely you want to rule over all. That's an important point when we see, when we evaluate um, as a cultural question where we are in our sense of the times. Okay, so where does this take us from here? I'd like to sketch briefly some of the core issues that recur in this modern thought when the issue of the image of God and Christian doctrines of the human being and human life are withdrawn, removed, or denied. My primary point in the following narrative is to illustrate how a denial of the Christian perspective of the image of God in humanity starts with a denial that humanity has a nature and has a purpose and a calling before God. This rejection has deeply shaped the conception of social and political life apart from God in Europe and North America and elsewhere, I might add, but most pointedly in those places in the last 200 years. Among anthropologists, a German scholar from the 19th century, Ludwig Feuerbach, was renowned for, um, yes, so here what we're talking about, we've mentioned this in our prior discussion, the image of God is here, the issue of fruitfulness and dominion or rule, the issue of vocation and labor is also brought up again in Genesis 2.15, and then in Genesis 2.18 to 24, out of this, we have a discussion of marriage and family. And so these are all related when you talk about culture and when you talk about human beings. When we come to the, our question that what it happens if God and the image of God are denied, this gentleman, um, that is a very prominent beard. Uh, there are some, I have some seminary friends who are younger than I by a good generation. They would be in awe of that beard. beard. Um, I just think he didn't have a good razor. Um, but anyway, one of the things that you find in Ludwig Feuerbach is he's, his argument is this. He's talking, his book was The Essence of Christianity, and he argues, this is what he claims, I show that the true sense of theology is anthropology. In other words, theology only tells us about man. Because for Feuerbach, he doesn't believe there's a God. So all of this God talk in religion is just anthropology writ large. It's not man made in the image of God, all religion is, is God in the image of man. Now, he's an anthropologist, and he wants to say that humans are natively religious, but they're not, it's not real. Um, and so 
this is a viewpoint 19th century, deeply shaped uh, the discipline of anthropology. And he says this in the same context. I find in this negation of human sense and the human understanding the negation of religion. Right? So he's literally point blank telling you everything you know about the, 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 the image of God and man, I am deconstructing. Um, and he says it this way in his work that's translated as The Essence of Christianity. He builds off of another philosopher, Hegel's understanding of history as the evolution and development of spirit. Feuerbach asks whether or not all religion is but a momentary stage in human development. It's just part of evolutionary process. Um, and so he posits that humanity will outgrow and transcend religion. And furthermore, in this work, Feuerbach argues that all religion was just human projection of a human being's inward nature into an ideal form, and that's what God is. Thus, for Feuerbach, God is a human construct. He's not self-existent, eternal. He's, not, he's separate from creatures. He's not, that does not exist. God for Feuerbach is a human concept, not a divine being. Apart from man's conception of God, God, according to Feuerbach, has no meaning, content, or reality. The immediate inference from his view is that all, any, and every religion is totally a human project, grounded in superstition and wish fulfillment. Okay, where does this go in psychology? Freud. Directly. <laughs> Freud uh, has a book called The Future of an Illusion, and his psychology is built off of uh, this question. And I find it ironic that there's a whole discipline named after the study of the soul by people who don't believe that there is a soul. That, 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 that would be your first probable cause of why you need to be careful. Uh, and it's not to say that there aren't questions here about what is Christian counseling and how do we deal with mental health and all these other things. But I'm just pointing out that there's a connection here between the way that Feuerbach thinks about anthropology and religion, and it's finding its way into how people cons counsel counsel people in the midst of suffering. But there is a direct bearing. You know, this is not just Dr. Rester needs to get out more and read somebody other than Feuerbach. Um, it's literally, this has pastoral import in the way it affects you, your family, your children, in the way that people address problems and issues. Um, furthermore, in this work, Feuerbach argued that all religion was human projection of a human being's inward nature in an ideal form. Okay. The immediate inference for him is that all, any, and every religion is totally human project grounded in superstition and wish, wish fulfillment. For him, God is a projection of man. God is man's image bearer, at best a shadow puppet of man's wishes. The understanding means religion is a tool in the hands of others. Now that's a dangerous idea, that the purpose of religion is control. Now, that's not to say that people haven't used religion in that way, wrongly, right? We can think of people who, in, in pastoral terms, we would call them literal charlatans. They're using religion as a basis of control. Um, but that's one of the things that this sets up in a very grand way. Um, now we turn to someone else. This gentleman, by the way, has an, his, his, the name of the street in front of the National Library of France is this person's name, Emile Durkheim, um, this gentleman. Uh, 
dashing beard. Um, yeah, right? Um, and his, he is the, considered the father of sociology. So we've looked at Feuerbach, the father of anthropology. He's had an impact on psychology. Here's Emil Durkheim, 19th century um, father of sociology. That is the study of societies. And he is impacted by Feuerbach as well. Um, he was he was a he was the founder of the modern discipline of sociology and his elementary forms of the religious life. He assumed Feuerbach's approach to religion was accurate, and his contribution to debate about religion was whether or not religion is a necessary aspect and a perennial aspect of human existence. He answered in the affirmative, it is. But he doesn't believe that it has a content. Um, furthermore, Durkheim saw the instrumental potential for religion as a form of societal control and discipline. Now, by the way, what, what, in, in, the, in my realm of working in the School of History, Philosophy, School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy, and Political Science, where does sociology impact? Political scientists. The political scientists who are doing the polling, the political scientists who are telling you how you think about society and the divisions and the parts and portions of it. They're, they're, it's a science built off of certain premises from Durkheim. For Durkheim, all societies will produce, will produce some form of religious category because in his view, religion and the construction of religion is part of human existence. It provides stability to human society and shared values. In his view, religion is the iron strappings on the barrel. If you lose religion, all of the diverse factors of your society will fall apart. That's his basic premise. His categories, um, in his view, religion is just a genus. The various religions are related species. His categories do not stop to ask whether the religions in question are true or false. We see that right there. I mean, that's, how can I sum up this whole work? That. Um, that one comment. So he agrees with Feuerbach that in fact all religion originates as a representation of a local human community through time. Thus, the actual status of a religion's truth claim is functionally irrelevant. The key for Durkheim is the function that religion has in a community that believes it to be true. He argues for a kind of traditionally Christian European ethic, but sought to stabilize that ethic on Feuerbach's presupposition. The result is Durkheim has a form of sociological religion and a Christian ethic, but he denies Christianity its power. So it gives us good moral people, but not in substance. Not with the deep layered reasoning why. Not with the deep sense of ballast in who they are in Christ Jesus or who they are as God's creature. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a form. So this, he wants this claim, he wants to claim the blessings of Christian devotion and social benefits without considering whether any particular religion is actually true. For Durkheim, religion is not just a help, helpful category, but it's the category that explains and grounds all other political, ethnic, social, and economic identities. Now, once you start saying this, it's not actually real, but it explains everything else. That's what I mean by it becomes a tool for control. So the sociology of religion is now not about the truth claims. It's about understanding how these things uh, 
transpire and how they can be shaped, what could you do with policy to shape this understanding? That's what happens with sociology in the 20th century in many ways. Um, it's not just about understanding social creatures. It could do that. There are branches of sociology that do that in a very sane and helpful way at some level. But on the other side of it, it definitely turns towards the political. Uh, you need to understand religion so you can impact policy. And by having policy, you can have order. And if you have order, you have hierarchy. Um, so there's definitely some links there. Um, now, when we turn to someone else, by the way, most sociological research at some level has to deal with Durkheim and its premises. From here, we turn to Jean-Paul Sartre. He's an atheistic humanist. Um, he's an existentialist in this regard, major thinker um, among the French. And um, he taught and wrote in the mid-20th century. We find him a thinker who discards the very category of human nature conceived metaphysically or ethically precisely because he rejects the notion of God. He, he draws a straight line. He rejects the notion of God, therefore there is no human nature to be had. Now, human nature itself is a projection. Feuerbach, gives us, Feuerbach and Durkheim give us the projection of, the, of religion. Dirk, Sartre pushes it even farther and says even the category of a human nature is up for grabs. So now we're deconstructing all the different aspects of the culture we've been hearing about. Um, in 1946, he was lecturing and he says this, what do we mean by saying that existence precedes essence? We mean that man first of all exists, encounters himself, surges up in the world, and defines himself. Right. Um, God, in the, in the creation account in Genesis, God is the one who tells man who he is. God's the one who says, you're male and female, made in the image of God. God is the one who sets the terms and the boundaries. In this environment, no. You exist, and you choose for yourself all that you will be. Now, he would also go on to say, if you do that, you are fully responsible for what happens next. And oh, by the way, according to Sartre, there is no purpose, there is no meaning, there is no significance, and it will cost you alienation and despair. Like, this is the state of affairs. If you're wondering why there are French philosophers sitting in coffee shops smoking furiously and wearing black, <laughs> this is it. Okay? They're mourning the, the, they're mourning the fact that they have existence and they have no essence. Isn't that a haunting statement? They have existence, but they have no being. They have no reason. They have no raison d'être. No reason to exist. These are the people training in our universities. Um, Sartre further elaborates that, that because there is no God, then there is no absolute morality. Direct line. No a priori good or evil. He clearly states in this lecture and elsewhere that two opposite actions are morally equivalent provided they are done with freedom of choice and self-actualization. Thus, the morality of the action themselves cannot be judged in terms of good or evil, but in terms of freedom and non-freedom. And that's perhaps maybe a subtle point in the discussion that people frequently miss. The language of good and evil today is describing whether it was a self-actualized free event or it was a not a self-actualized free event. 
Isn't that the, the disconnect you're having sometimes in the way that people are using good and evil in the society? It's good if I will it. It's not good if I don't will it. That's a totally different category than talking about things as good with respect to the law. Not good with respect to the law. Um, and this is where we find ourselves in our, in our modern conversation. Thus, the morality of the actions themselves cannot be judged in terms of good or evil, but in terms of freedom and non-freedom. You see, for Sartre, in agreement with Durkheim and Feuerbach, there is no God projecting a sense. Uh, there is no God to project. But in Sartre, there is no human nature, no image of God either. There are only individuals projecting a sense of solidarity on the basis of shared choice. Where does Sartre end up? It's all about the party. He's a radical anarcho-communist. Now, that's a political outcropping of this deep sense of angst. It's the atheism writ large. Um, so what you should see in this as a Christian, you should pity the despair. This is where, this is where what they long for, they, they've sealed themselves off from. Purpose, meaning, significance. And that's precisely the kind of thing that the gospel brings to people. Who they are in Christ Jesus. Their identity is not their own. They are more than what their sins are. They are more than just their desires. So he's pushed his atheism all the way through. There is no God. There is no human nature. There is no right or wrong beyond what a person himself decides. Human reality in this conception is whatever a person wills it to be. But since there is no moral standard, there's also no category, much less any possibility of progress. Isn't that an irony? Isn't that what most communists want? We're going to progress to the utopia. Is it possible? No. <laughs> What's left? Conflict. Perpetual conflict. Why can't you be at peace? Because there is no peace. That's what you have to understand. Uh, about the moment we find ourselves in. in. In Augustinian terms, this is the city of man versus the city of God. You are what you worship. If you worship yourself, you find all that that means apart from God. And Sartre is doing that, and those who follow him. Um, but since there is no moral standard, there's also no category, much less any possibility of progress for the individual or society. Indeed, for Sartre, there is no ultimate goal. There's only the freedom and anguish of choice. There's only choice and absolute responsibility with no possibility of redemption. He says that, point blank. No possibility of redemption, salvation, or progress for the individual or for society or even the human race. Thus, the wearing of black. Human beings only exercise freedom to change, but in Sartre's estimation, they lack the capacity to determine for themselves in an ultimate sense whether they're doing what is good or whether they're doing what is right. That's the stakes when you lose the image of God and man, when you lose God. Uh, you may know of the Beatles song, Imagine. That's Sartre, in a nutshell. 
Despite Sartre's insistence on solidarity and community or solidarity within a political party or a revolutionary movement, such a profound rejection of both God as well as of human nature on a metaphysical and ethical level commits Sartre to a human condition comprised of anguish, abandonment, and despair as one gropes in the dark with the realization that regardless of what one does, there's no significance to one's life or actions other than what one assigns to it. Man is always faced with choice, always faced with freedom, always faced with anguish, abandonment, and despair of what he must be. It is anguish because it is the full weight of responsibility. It is abandonment because there is no goal, no destination, no telos towards which any human being strives other than their own invention. And it's despair or forlornness because there is no remedy. And this is that play, no exit. As Sartre says, Existentialism is not atheist in the sense that it would exhaust itself in demonstrations of the non-existence of God. You don't go to, you don't go to Sartre to get a, a debate about the proofs for God's existence. That's not what he's doing. He says this, It declares rather that even if God existed, that would make no difference from its point of view. That's how dark it is. Not that we believe God does exist, but we think that the real problem is not that of God's existence. What man's needs is to find himself again and to understand that nothing can save him from himself, not even a valid proof of the existence of God. To which a Christian would say, ah, you're not saved by proofs. <laughs> you're saved by the God-man who entered into history and grabbed hold of the sinner. That's the glory of the gospel. You're not saved by the proof you're saved by Christ who entered into all of the forlornness, abandonment, and despair of the human race, met it full head on, and saves through it. You see, the resurrection grounds everything for the Christian. Yes, we've been talking about the creation mandate and the cultural mandate, but the hope of the gospel are the promises of God evidenced, demonstrated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him. I want to turn now to another. This is on Dutch television back in 71, so a blast from the past on some furniture and um, hairstyles. Um, the, the, the host wants to be a beetle, I think. Um, but this is, this is Michael, Michel Foucault and Noam Chomsky in a debate on this, these questions. Um, another illuminating point in the modern discussion of human nature occurred in a 1971 televised debate between the historian of science, Michael Foucault, and the philosopher Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky championed a form of human nature that arose from a strictly naturalistic origin, Chomsky thought he could get to a human nature that grounded meaning, sense, and purpose from an evolutionary perspective. Michel Foucault says, nope. And this is the response. He also, furthermore, if there's no naturalistic... So what, what's that, that at heart in this issue? If Chomsky's right, then he can have an evolutionary ground for justice. For law. That's what he's trying, he's trying to recover after Sartre. 
He can tap justice and progress as sociological constructs without any reality beyond their human proponents. And in the course of the debate, at one point, Foucault got frustrated. And this is what he says. When we discuss the problem of human nature and political problems, then differences arose between us. And contrary to what you think, you can't prevent me from believing that these notions of human nature, of justice, of the realization of the essence of human beings, are all notions and concepts which have been formed within our civilization. In other words, all these things are only constructs of our, of our time, place, and circumstance in history. That's how, that's, Foucault's an atheist here. And a deep skeptic on whether or not these things are, uh, whether justice is even possible. Um, However regrettable it may be, put forward these notions to describe or justify a fight which should and shall in principle overthrow the very foundations of our society. This is an extrapolation for which I can't find historical justification. That's the point. So as is well known in the literature surrounding the history of science and institutional power, Foucault's work has been a scathing critique of modern purportedly scientific and normal institutions, such as mental health institutions, justice systems, and prisons, medicine and sexual repression. In his view, these are all instruments of power in the hands of the state to control the biological aspects of life. This is what Foucault terms biopower. The dehumanizing treatment of human beings by state powers where human beings are only objects devoid of transcendent meaning and value as human persons. Now let me put this in context in the American context. 1971, Winsor versus Wade. I've got a, I've, there's, a, yeah, 72, 73, right? That's when they're in the middle of the debates on it. And what happens in the courts by 1980 in the American Constitutional Republic is there is a divorce between being human and being a person. You can be human, and you are not considered a person. And for a Christian, those things are linked. To be one is to, is to have to have dignity, to have value. You can't drive a wedge between those, but that's where we find ourselves. And who does that endanger? It endangers the young, it endangers the elderly, it endangers anyone with any sense, uh, any sort of uh, question about normalcy. And that's the point of Foucault's question of biopower. This becomes also a tool in the hands of the state. Who gets to be a person? Gets to be. You rise to the level and are deigned granted this. You're no longer talking in terms of inalienable rights. These are deigned rights. Um, this, is a, this is why Christians must be engaged. Um, central to Foucault's anti-essentialist account of human life is this claim that there are no transcendent essential aspects of both human beings as well as social and political institutions across time and culture. In so doing, Foucault is critiquing any academic discipline that seeks universal principles. He considers this a category mistake arising from an optimistic view of state power and controlling biological life. In short, Foucault's argument against human nature and against any modern state's usage of what he calls biopower is the wrong application of science and political governments. Remember earlier I said that knowledge creates an ethical edge? Foucault's bumping into instances in modern society where science has behaved without ethics which is perfectly logical if there is no human nature, right? There are no guardrails. It's just what we want it to be. 
In the name of science and order, Foucault argues, as well as a theory of human nature, modern states seek to control human freedom through categories of normal and deviant. Foucault also critiques the usage of biological science to reduce the understanding of a human being to a mere organism in order to understand human motivation and action. You know, put in this electrical impulse, out comes this twitch. Um, that human beings are just a product of their deterministical mechanical values. Um, Google uses this mindset when it says that you are a function of all of your, of your purchases. Right? Uh, that's their rubric, is they understand you as an organism in the, in the, in the gerbil cage. And if they give you the right stimulus, you'll, it'll produce the, this sale. That is the, the marketing... Mo this is where the, the image of God is now into marketing. Uh, or the lack of the image of God is now into marketing. You are only a function of your urges. You are not a function of moral choices. That is ripe in our modern advertising agencies. I'm not saying these aren't good tools. I'm just saying... All knowledge and culture and technology creates ethical edges. And that's an important question. What is the human being and how do we treat them? Um, I want to move beyond Foucault and Chomsky. Um, Foucault goes on, and I won't dwell on this, but Foucault goes on to argue that the reason there's class warfare is just because there's always going to be classes. Never that there's actually ever going to be success. As soon as someone comes into power, there will arise opposition, and the fight will go on. Again, there is no peace in this viewpoint. Our final stop in the consideration of social and political discourse, which denies the image of God and any resultant human nature, takes us to the work of the political historian and theorist, the Italian scholar Giorgio Agamben. Agamben's lengthy publication project is an examination of the death of an ethic of dignity and respect globally. He's a relatively recent scholar in the last 30 years. Sorry, I'm a historian, I think in millennia. But he's a relatively recent scholar um, that's exploring the problem of the death of an ethic of dignity. And he's asking the question, where does this show up in our societies? So what does he look at? He looks at the way marginalized groups are treated. Uh, he's looking at questions of, like, for example, concentration camps. He's looking at the way that people are dehumanized if they're not a citizen. He's looking at questions of what do you do with indigenous peoples who are on land you want. He's asking questions on the borders and on the margins. Are these people human too? What does their humanity require of us? So he's asking it from those questions, that, that standpoint. And he's taking up Foucault's point about biopower. Um, and it's creating some very interesting critiques. Um, he calls these people on the liminal edges of human society. These are the people he calls by the Latin term homina sacri. Now, if you recognize there, sacri means sacred. And it sounds interesting. It's like, why are they called sacred people? Well, because in the Roman construction of law, once you were appointed to death, you were now in sacred space. No one can ransom you from that position. And so when he calls these people on the liminal edges of society, the, the sacri homines, these are the people that are condemned to live an existence that isn't fully actualized as human beings. Um, so, he goes on here and he says, these are the people he calls the hominis sacri. They are not, the, those who are not killed physically, but are functionally killed socially and politically through imprisonment. 
They are not beasts, but they are denied the full expression of their humanity. Agamben's work focuses on the deployment of the state of emergency. It's an emergency, so we have to, we have to avoid the We can't do what the law says. We have to do something else. It's an emergency. Um, you may remember there was a political operative in the last 10 years, 15 years, that used to joke, never waste a good emergency, which is kind of chilling when you realize that Agamben's saying, yes, when you invoke the state of the emergency to do things that you couldn't otherwise do through other channels, that's actually a sign of totalitarianism. Uh, and he says, when that occurs, people on the margins get hurt. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting point. Uh, he focuses on the deployment of the state of emergency. In the state of emergency, the suspension of the rule of law is normalized in order for the state to impose order. And as the state of emergency is deployed more frequently, it becomes that too becomes normalized. So it's no surprise that Agamben's work examines the history of the use of concentration camps, detention camps, internment camps as instruments of state control. In these camps, human beings are outside the realm of human society in a border space where they're neither fully human nor beasts. They are dealt with outside the rule of law. Whereas a dictator claims to be above the law, the homo sacar is even beneath the observance of the law. Like they don't even attract the law's gaze. And they live in that liminal space. Whereas a dictator acts as if that he was above the law, therefore the, um, the homo sacer is beneath it. And therefore the struggle for their plight is even to be heard. Gambin's work highlights the reality that when a state has power to deny humanity of any person, he has this haunting comment. He says, the moment there's one person in a concentration camp, we all are. Because the move that was made to deny the humanity of that person could be normalized. That's a haunting and chilling state of affairs. And he's, he's looking at the last 200 years of European history when he's making these sorts of observations. Um, so that raises up all these points. Why are we going on this tour de force of all of these folks perhaps you've never heard of? Because the image of God matters. Human dignity matters as a cultural value, as a Christian value. And one of the things in an age where there is so much despair, Christianity can speak to this with depth, with sensitivity, with pastoral care, and with, dare I say, nobility. This is humanizing. It grants dignity to people in a way that no other thing that we've talked about so far can um, so it's, it's been a pleasure to work with you on this. I think there's some places of, um, I think there's some places of conclusions we can arrive at. First, human beings as image bearers of God validate their basic dignity and grant basic standing in any human community. This is a, this is a point where Christianity is unique. It didn't used to be unique, Right? In the 19th century, Durkheim would agree with you. But post-Sartre, Foucault, and Agamben, that is unique and a valuable thing to keep before us as Christians and as citizens. Second, without respecting the image of God, any state can become a regime of oppression when it views human life as primarily biological and incidental to the state. Right? If the state is not a servant of the people, then the people are servants of the state. It's a very simple equation. 
so the point of human dignity and the point of limiting um, human action in terms of power is a very important component of a biblical ethic of society. We'll talk a little bit about that in our next discussion when I look at um, the English political philosopher Thomas Hobbes and the Scottish Presbyterian Samuel Rutherford because of their understanding of what dominion is. That ties in directly to our understanding of, of, the, of the created order. Third, Christian witness and proclamation declare the goodness of creation and the hope of redemption. That's a basic, conclu- it's a basic point of Christianity, but I think, you've, I think I've highlighted for you that why it's such an utter need. And fourth, Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship, where you honor the dignity of, of, the, of the other. You honor the gift of hospitality, the gift of belonging. You want to grow a church? The gift of belonging. Because in an environment where people are told you're nothing but a, a, a sack of chemicals, you're nothing but a biological accident, you're nothing but this, you have no dignity. In that space, hospitality dignifies and it speaks to some of our deepest needs. You want to grow your church? Grow in love and hospitality. Ask the Lord for eyes to see those who are not seen. And that's a point of repentance, but it's also a point of prayer. And fourth, Christian, that Christian fellowship in the religious community of the church, it's a witness against any trend that denigrates God's good creation and redemptive purposes in human society. Not through compulsion, not through coercion, not through will to violence, but through the proclamation of the lived gospel. So how do you, how do you connect all of this to a question of, okay, so what do I do with the cultural mandate in my home, in my church? And the answer is, you're in front of humans. Consider the blessing and the joy and the goodness of God. I think that's an appropriate place for us to stop. We have a little bit of time, um, I think, and if you would like to ask questions, I'm happy to take them. He he basically returned to his comment about the biological. Um, Michel Foucault got him. Uh, um, Chomsky basically ended up saying, we agree to disagree. You know, Right. We, we just agree to disagree. And, and, and Foucault is an atheist. But he says, my problem with your, your sense of evolution is the same problem I have with the theist. Right? Foucault is a, leery of any optimism regarding humanity. That's kind of depressing, actually, uh, for a philosopher who studies humanity. But he's, he, he's, he's, not, he's a skeptic on that front. And so he, the same critique he levels against Christianity he does something that most evolutionary biologists don't expect. He turns the same critique on the optimism of the evolutionary biologist that says we're moving towards his, uh, historical progress. He takes that same skepticism and turns it, and it withers. And that was the problem for Chomsky. Um, so the, the, a good question. Thank you. Yes, sir. So the critical theory question is, is built 
on the disciplines of sociology, anthropology, and certain conceptions of existential humanism, atheistic existential humanism. So that's a, the, the foundations of it. Um, the other thing that I would throw into that mix is uh, two figures that I didn't go into but are certainly important would be Marx and Engels. Um, not so much on their, their understanding of class conflict, because there's places where, um, you know, as, as one British political observer noted, go to Marxists if you want the critique. Don't go for them for solutions. Um, they can tell you where the problems are, but they can't tell you how to fix it. Um, and so one of the things that, that, that the Marxists do, though, is they, that, that Engels and Marx touch on that's of interest here for the cultural mandate. They want to abolish marriage. Carte blanche. They think it's a step in the evolutionary progress of humanity. Um, they want an environment where children are raised by the state. They want an environment where parents are not necessarily committed to each other. They want absolute freedom in that regard. So when critical theory interjects here about the standard question about what is the nature of oppression, they're operating from a very radical understanding of what freedom is. You know, free, for, for, for Marx and Engels, freedom is not found in a marriage. Freedom is not found in the bounds of father and child. That is not freedom for them. That is constraint. So if it's an economic argument, the family is grist for the mill. And I think that's where Christians feel it. The critical theory part is a language of oppression, the language of complaint, it's a language of power struggle, but in the process, it it destroys a concept of the family and tells someone the family is not where you go to be free. The being a citizen is where you go to be free. You're not a human first, you're a citizen first. That's a very interesting argument, but it's part of that question. So that's where I would go. Um, on that one. Yes, sir. Well, I didn't say evangelism was easy. Um, but I will say this. Um, I work in terms of ancient Christianity, in medieval Christianity, in Reformation history. I can tell you that um, one of the things that, that an ancient church contributed to in Roman society that viewed Christians as antisocial, immoral, and anti-religious the Romans were pious pagans and statist pagans, and they viewed Christians as outside the boundaries. But what shocked them and what eventually converted them was the Christian deep sense of identity. There's wonderful letters from the second century where you have anonymous letters from a Christian trying to persuade someone to become a believer and talks about how Christians are Christians regardless of where they're from. They don't have a distinctive manner of speech. They don't have a distinctive manner of dress. They don't have these things. They, what they have is Christ. And so I think the first point to make is many of those sort of complaints are coming from perhaps real situations of abuse. 
that you can point to real abuses in the church. And so one of the things that I would say is, is that this is where actually the doctrine of repentance in the body of Christ is actually evangelistic. A radical commitment to repentance and faith gives the lie to the, to the point, all you are is oppressive people. So repentance and faith is the process. Yes. Yes. And and um and in addition, the you know I've, I've, one of the things I did in my um, Reformation class this past fall is I translated through a little document, and it was on what is the nature of a true Reformation of the Church. It was given by a um, it was a. New Testament scholar at Heidelberg, and he had this little treatise on the, the true reformation of the church. And he identifies several areas. First of all, he says the first reformer of the church is Jesus Christ. So go to him first for faith and life and correction of morals. He goes, but second, there, the, the issues that have to be reformed in the church are its doctrines, its worship, its polity, and its morals. And in 1597, he said, we've done the first two. We've looked at doctrine and rights, but we're still working on morals. We're still working on morals. The, the, the reformation of the morals. And then he pushes it farther and it says, this is where leaders must lead. lead. You want to persuade your people that they should repent? Then leaders should lead in the area of repentance. There it is. So how do you take the hand out of the, how do you take the club? All religion is is oppression and projection out of the hand of the Marxist. One, show them hospitality, show them love, show them repentance, and show them change. So yes, we still have a reformation in front of us. Thank you for the question. Others, or do you want to? Is the next question when are we eating? <laughs> city of God and the city of man relate to seed of the woman and seed of the serpent? So the city of man and the city of God is a construct out of Augustine. Um, one of the things that's happening when Augustine writes this is in the 5th century, he's a Roman, he's a Christian. At this point in history, Rome was a Christian nation. Um, it had emperors who were claiming to be Christians. And so uh, the barbarians are invading People who are not Roman or the, the country's falling apart. And so a question arises among the Christians. Uh, if Rome falls, how can Christianity continue? And so what Augustine was wrestling with was is, uh, Christians, because they saw their political fortunes failing, they were questioning whether or not the purposes of God were failing. Right? They were reading their Christianity by their headlines. And the point that he's making in the book, City of God, is a fundamental one for Christian culture ever since. And it's this, that uh, the progress of the church and the gospel is not dependent on any political state. And he's saying that 
to the Roman Empire, which has a wall in northern, has a border wall in the northern of Scotland, and has uh, armies marching around in the Syrian desert. I mean, that's a large chunk of territory. And what he's saying to them is, is that the Christian, the Christian uh, gospel and the church are not going to fail because of any one particular um, political state. And he goes into that saying that, look, the city of man is those who worship themselves. They use things to worship themselves. Whereas the city of God, they use things to worship God. And people are not things. When you, love your when you love your stuff more than your neighbor, Augustine says you are in the city of man. Is that relevant for today? Now I'm getting into preaching. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, when you see people, you know, one of the, one of the critiques of Marxism uh, in general is the idea that the only people who are oppressive are the rich. And the, the counterpoint is this. Anyone can be motivated by greed. Anyone can love themselves more than someone else not dependent on your economic class. That is the nature of sin. And so that's one of the back to other point. That's why fellowship and hospitality is so deconstructive of, uh, of arguments against Christianity. How many atheists have testimonies of how they came to Christ was through the faithfulness of the Christian church that kept on loving on them? That's what deconstructed their atheism. Um, that's an interesting point, too. Well, what we like to say is that we love our country. But kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But the church of Jesus Christ is enduring. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's, uh, that is the source of hope for us, is that God has promised that his church will prevail. And so we put our, our trust in that God. So... Um, so as promised, there is such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> so what we're going to do is, uh, if you need to take a restroom stop, it's right along the way, and, and just file down this hall, and then all the way across the back, and you'll be able to pick up a box lunch uh, in front of the conference room, and then come and take a place, and... Um, then there's tables outside.